fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, a.k.a. Lewis, a.k.a. Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. So this time around, I'm actually going to do my very best to not spoil too much about the books we're going to be talking about today. Uh, little details, yes, so if you haven't read them and you prefer to go into books with no context, fair warning, but if you're thinking about reading them, don't fear, I'm not going to spoil too much. So whether you're a writer or a reader who has or hasn't read these books, welcome! Today we're going to be talking about the Dark Elite series by Chloe Neal. The reason I'm going to stay away from spoilers as much as I can is that I have never seen anyone else talk about these books. I've never met anyone who's read them. I've never even seen them on anyone's shelf in the background of a video or a photo. So I'm guessing they're not very well known. Um, the first book is Firespell, the second is Hexbound, and the third is Charm Fall, and again by Chloe Neal. And I'm here to remedy that. I'm here to remedy that no one seems to know about these books. If you're looking for a fun series, these are the books for you. They are quick, only about 250 pages each, YA urban fantasies on the younger end of the YA spectrum. And I think, for reasons we'll get to in a moment, that they are well worth the read. Uh, the Dark Elites series is about a 15-year-old girl, Lily Parker, whose parents send her to a boarding school in Chicago so they can take a research opportunity in Germany. While there, Lily discovers her new best friend, Scout, and the two boys they're crushing on are actually Dark Elites, teenagers with magical powers, who at night fight evil in the form of the Reapers, also teenagers with magical powers. What's the difference between the two? Well, as people with magic age, it corrupts and drives them insane, unless they siphon off bits of the souls of other people to keep up their energy. This means that by the age of 25, you must either give up your magic willingly, which the adepts, aka Lily's friends, have agreed to do, or start to feed off the souls and lives of others to keep your own power, i.e. the reapers, says the evil that the adepts get to fight in the middle of the night. Um, there's some moral quandaries, cute romance, some fun magic fights, and an abundance of sarcasm. So again, would recommend if you've never heard of them before. The one issue with these books I can't leave off is that they're incomplete. I read these for the first time back when I was in high school and I loved them. They were so fun. I wanted more. I did the research. I... I really dug deep into the internet trying to find out when and where there would be more, and there are not. <laughs> Neil essentially decided to focus on writing a different series. I waited, I waited for more of these books, but it's it's now been 10 years since Charmful was published, and I'm losing hope that there will ever be more. On my reread this week, I did realize that the end of book three was more decent than I remember as far as endings go. It certainly leaves a lot of questions unanswered, but there are no tremendous cliffhangers, which I guess is nice. I still hate this, though. Why do authors do this? Why not finish the thing you start? Is it the publisher's call? Is it theirs? I don't like it when authors start series they don't finish. It really lets me down, especially when I really enjoy the books. I need to know. 
things. I need to know if Lily's parents are evil. And uh, I hope they are because I love the evil parent trope. I love to be book angry. I need to know more about my favorite budding vampire romance that does not include the main character. I need to know about the romance that does involve the main character, and I need more Scout. But, sigh. I wonder, really, if Neil just wrote herself into a corner here, there are a lot of difficulties in terms of the magic system she created. Would Lily and her friends actually have to give up their magic, and would that inevitably disappoint readers. Could could that be solved? Could that be changed? Or is that the inevitable conclusion that they have to give up their magic? Would the problems between Lily and her boyfriend actually be insurmountable and therefore lead to a dissatisfying ending to the romance? I, I don't think these are insurmountable problems, but I especially don't think you as an author should publish a book with a world-building hole so big you can't eventually fill it. I can do nothing about this except make sure that my own books don't fall into the trap. I can't change what happened with these, but I can I can change it in mine and you can change it in yours. Don't raise questions you can't answer unless they are very, very small. You can leave like little small things for readers to think of on their own, but not something huge like are Lily's parents actually evil, you know? Um, don't come up with an idea of a magic system so unfair you can't find a resolution for it. Um, in these books, the solution could easily be that Lily and her friends do need to give up their magic, but there are other ways out. And I think maybe Neil either lost interest or lost focus. This is why I think it's generally a good idea to write or at least plan all of the books in a series before you query or self-publish the first one. I think this is the opposite advice a lot of other authors give, but I'm a big believer in it. Knowing how your series is going to end while writing the first book whether that's on first draft because you're a planner or 8,000th edit because you now have all the other books written is the best way to not write yourself into a corner you can't solve. I don't know that that's why more of these books don't exist, but I suspect. And now that I'm older rereading them, I can think of at least three ways out without tearing down the existing world building. Neil already started to build up themes of the gray area in the world and scientific research into magic, so I feel like there are answers, but maybe she doesn't know them. And so I would caution you as a writer to know the ending, not necessarily when you start, but definitely by the time you put any of the books into the world and claim a certain place in the hearts of readers. I, I just feel like that's more considerate. <laughs> That being said, I do still love these books. Rereading them with the knowledge ahead of time that book three wouldn't end in a series satisfying way, I think did help me keep my expectations in check. So fair warning if you want to go read them now. I had forgotten a lot more about them than I assumed I had. And so they were just plain fun. They were fun back then. They were fun now. And they have real reread potential. On that note, let's talk about the reason why these books are rereadable. The Voice because the voice in these books is fantastic. This is one of the best voices I've seen done in YA, I think. There is a real flow to these books, a voice that is consistent across the series, unique and entertaining. Um, these books are written in first person from Lily's perspective, and the prose is written just as sarcastically and, I guess, teenager-y as she and her dialogue are. That sounds bad, but only if it's not what you're going for. I don't mean it's teenagery in quality. I mean it's teenagery in terms of concern and commentary and style. 
you read it and it feels like you're in a teenager's head. Third-person stories need to be a little more distant from the main character, a little more professional as opposed to character-focused. They tend to be about the author's voice, usually. But first-person provides the opportunity to infuse your character's voice into the prose maybe more than your own. It will come across more like speech than like writing, though it still needs to be somewhere in the middle. I think the reason I tend to prefer third-person is because too many first-person stories don't take full advantage of this opportunity. Go really deep into your character's voice with the first person. Lily is a very normal teenager, so to speak. She has experiences that aren't normal, but she's relatable and interesting because of her attitude and interests. She's not a blank slate like some first-person narrators tend to be. Girl is sarcastic and sassy, but not a jerk, which uh, that balance is something I really like. She's got a strange but accessible sense of humor. She's honest and confused, but very loyal and strong. She and Scout together have the best banter. And by the way, can I just mention how much I love that the banter is mostly a best friend thing and not a boyfriend thing? The boys are also witty, and I do love them too, but the source is really the group as opposed to flirting, so I would like to encourage you to write in a best friend just as interesting and lovable as a love interest because there's typically less drama and an even greater infusion of humor. But, Scout being awesome aside, Lily is also great. As she's narrating the story, in the past tense, as though she is actually telling us the story from the future with certain future insights, which I love, she puts a lot of sass into it. The tone is very, for lack of a better term, Lily. It's stylistically bold. Uh, it's, it's a risk to go this teenage in your prose, but it works out here because it is consistently maintained and important to Lily as our main character. There is a more gothic setting, but with the sarcastic tone, it feels very accessible, very real, more wintry as opposed to outright dark, if that makes sense. Um, the humor keeps these books alive and maintains our suspension of disbelief, even when some maybe cheesier things are going on, and it does create a certain atmosphere. Um, I, I would say the voice is really the highlight of these books. I would also say for you guys that this type of humor is the best way to get around a younger-aged YA story to still make it entertaining to the older YA crowd. This is how you cross over. So if you are writing a book in first person, since it runs the risk of inherently feeling cheesier and therefore younger since it's such a close-up, I would recommend going all in on the voice. I think it sells the story and your main character. Obviously, third-person books need voice as well, but really yours, in, in those cases, your author's voice. In first-person books, don't be afraid to be more sarcastic or grammatically incorrect or unreliable or whatever it is that represents your character, so long as it's consistent with the atmosphere you're going for. I think Neil nailed it here, assuming she was trying to be funny and showcase soulmate-level friendships and the fair emotional struggle of being a teenager. So this is a great example to use if you need some pointers on how to infuse a unique character voice into your first-person narration. I also think it's a great example of a book that teens can connect to, like actually teens, though its tone is on the lighter side. I said like wintry as opposed to dark. It's very high school with brat pack drama and schoolwork. There are still real issues discussed, like determining if the world is really black and white and how to grow apart from your parents. Since I read it as a teenager the first time, I don't know how it would read from scratch for an adult, 
but I suspect that Lily's sarcasm and the friendship bonds and sweet romance and fun magic would still shine through for an adult too. It's a less serious read, but still really fun and certainly not shallow. It seems to be middle ground on the age appeal, and it does that by focusing on teen topics rather than adult topics and by prioritizing sarcasm and developing worldview rather than seriousness and established worldview. Lily is growing but still fully herself. She doesn't back down. She's a teenager with a backbone, but still a teenager, and that makes her interesting and relatable and a unique YA voice. Now, there is a 50-50 debatable portion of the voice here that I want to address. Lily and Scout and many of the other characters use a lot of pop culture references. Not excessively, but they are certainly there. Gossip Girl is mentioned several times because they're at a private, expensive boarding school, as are certain rock bands and movies and fashion designers and sports players with their teams. Pop culture references are really questionable in books. In a third-person story, I think the correct answer is just always no. I wouldn't recommend you do it there ever. Um... In first person, especially if it's contemporary or urban fantasy, I still don't tend to love them, but, but, it does add to the voice here. That Gilmore Girl style banter is really apparent, and it probably wouldn't be the same without the specifics. So, really, why are pop culture references risky? Well, they date your story. Do teenagers these days still watch Gossip Girl? I don't actually know. I... I didn't even watch Gossip Girl when I first read these, and a lot of the references went over my head at the time, and I was living in that era. So, is that reference going totally over the heads of anyone trying to read them today? Probably. Or it will at least date them as older. Now, there's nothing actually wrong with that. Setting a book in a very specific time period, even something as specific as the 2008 to 2012 era, is a stylistic choice. It can work. It's setting. A lot of the references made are now established classics in their own right, like Gilmore Girls, like Gossip Girl. But you do need to realize as a writer that that's what you're doing. You're essentially establishing historical fiction before it's historical. You are dating it. As an adult, it's fun to see all the nostalgic Easter eggs. I liked the references. Gives it a particular vibe that isn't easily replicable in other books, and I don't think it could be written today that way. That's the voice, but it also might encourage some DNFs in the target audience if readers today don't get the references. I, I go really back and forward on this one, whether it's worth it to add pop culture into your book, even if it's urban. So let's just say this. Do it on purpose for nostalgia and vibe and because you want to date things, not because you're trying to be trendy and certainly not on accident. Let's also say that you make the references Easter eggs as opposed to necessary to the reader's understanding of the story. If you want to reference Gossip Girl, go for it. But don't make it the only description you give of the setting. I shouldn't need to have seen Gossip Girl to know what you're talking about. If you want to reference Phil Collins, go for it. But don't make a line from a song the answer to a question that many readers therefore won't be able to get. Essentially, don't make the pop culture reference essential to the understanding of what's going on. Let's also, on a third count, say that the references should be big references. Don't go niche with this. That will only make your story really inaccessible, 
only reference the type of show or band or fashion that will still be easily recognizable 20 years from now. I mean, go ahead, you can add obscure things, but do not draw attention to them. They should be very subtle. Gossip Girl is known even if it's not as big as it used to be. If a reader doesn't understand entirely, they get the gist. They kind of get what you're saying. Same with a lot of other references. As pop culture references go, I think Neil chose the right ones, given the setting. But I wouldn't say it's always a good idea to date books. It's also true that now, if Neil were to try to write more books in this series, she'd have to maintain that older vibe to be consistent, and that could be really hard marketing-wise for her, since her references are a bit outdated now. So only add the pop culture stuff if it's on purpose to ground the story in a specific time and place, if they're Easter eggs rather than essential, if they are big as opposed to niche, and if you plan to release books in a timely manner. Let's now talk about the love interest, Jason Shepard. I do love thee. He is one of the few technically bad boy love interests that is actually a really decent guy. Why is this so hard to do? Why do we not do this more as authors? Please, if you give me a bad boy that treats people generally like crap, I'm not going to be on his side. I don't care how hot he is, and I don't care how well he treats our main character. Jerks are a no-go. But if he has bad boy traits while still managing human decency, I am in. I am all in. Maybe bad boy is even the wrong term these days for what Jason is, but small spoiler from like 10 chapters into book one, he is a werewolf. He has the whole I'm cursed and my family is awful thing going on, but he's super sweet. He's protective of the whole group of adepts, not just Lily, and he treats her really well. He doesn't have this uncontrollable, insatiable lust blood or otherwise. He doesn't go over protective. He has weaknesses she has to save him from and also a tremendous ability to save her too. He certainly has his flaws, all characters should, but he's not abusive or creepy or a jerk to everyone he's not romantically interested in. He has a friendship with Scout, Lily's best friend, which ugh, I love. He doesn't just dismiss her in favor of Lily. And really, one of the biggest strengths in writing a bad boy love interest that isn't a total douchebag is to give him a best friend. Think Will Herondale syndrome, right? Will is partly so lovable because of his friendship with Jem. Jason is partially so lovable because of his friendship with Michael. They have their own banter, their own friendship going on, so Lily isn't the center of his world. His werewolfiness isn't even the center of his whole world. He has goals and interests and people outside of her and the magic stuff. But the friend group, all the adepts, but specifically Lily, Scout, Jason, and Michael, have such a cool dynamic. It's, like, like collectively very friendly, very caring, very sarcastic, very funny, very teasing. And Jason, at being one of them, feels like a real person while still being very swoon-worthy and actively 16 instead of 8,000. So if you're going to write a bad boy, please follow the Jason Shepard model. He can be a good person and still have a tragic past. Really, the good person part should be the most attractive thing. <laughs> 
he's part of why I want more books in this series because he and Lily have a really healthy but relatable thing going on with real conflict, but still a little bit on the teen angsty drama side. He's a really interesting, really witty guy on his own. I also love Michael. I don't have a lot of space to talk about him here, but he's adorable. I like it when the love interests are friends with the best friends. Michael and Lily get along. Jason and Scout get along. It's great. This makes the romantic relationships feel stable and good. Scout and Lily have some conversations about boys that aren't overbearing or weird, but also aren't shallow. And Jason partially prompts this. He is a great character with a dark past and issues who just happens to also be blonde and a decent human being. (laughs) Go figure. So obviously you can write the more classic bad boy type, but I just think that loses some of the intended romantic appeal. Uh, Making a bad boy as in dark tragic past, as in facing some kind of conflict within, it can still be a decent human being to the people around them. And I would like to see this more. How many times have I said that? on this podcast. I guess I can stop saying it, but I just think it's important. I think there is a wide spectrum of love interests that could exist that don't because we're going with a specific formula. So I said follow the Jason Shepard model. I still think there's room for that, but really just go a little deeper than what is typically considered love interest material. All right, a few closing points. I do really love reading books from this 2008-2012 era of YA. There are so many nostalgic commonalities. The obsession with eye color, the interjections of sarcasm, the teen drama, the slang, the OG vampire werewolf dynamics, the perspectives on magic, the teenage themes, rather than obsessions with murder and sex as though these are universally accessible to 16-year-olds. I do love the current YA scene in a lot of ways, but if you're unsatisfied with it to some degree, even if you are currently a teenager, there's a lot to be gained from the books that came out 10 years ago. I recommend Firespell. Um, I also love Neil's use of parentheses. Gosh, parentheses are such an underrated punctuation. Why don't we use them more? They're not excessive here, maybe 15 times per book, and they really add to that voice I talked about and the interesting prose. I think writers these days are scared to use parentheses because, honestly, I am sometimes. Parentheses give this impression, maybe, that what you're putting inside of them is inherently not necessary. That's not true. So they feel like a risk, but I think they often pay off. Use them correctly, as in they are not actually necessary to the grammar of the sentence, but They are to the point, and they can be a fantastic addition to break up some of the excessive M dashes or semicolons that the rest of us tend to lean into. Um, And then third, this is just for, I just want to say this, I must have hallucinated a scene from these books. I could have sworn that at some point in these books, there was a scene where Jason takes Lily to meet his werewolf family, and they like go on a feeding frenzy and try to kill her and he has to protect her. Is this from another book or did I just make this up at some point? Because I I was obsessed with these. It's very possible. I imagined it, but it doesn't feel like the kind of thing I would have come up with. Um, so, so that doesn't exist. Lily doesn't meet Jason's parents at any point in these books. Maybe that's a plus or a minus for you. Just heads up going in. Um, but I thought there was. So I was 
waiting on it the entire time. I was like 50 pages from the end of book three and I was like, huh, I must have hallucinated that part because it's not here. Um, and there are only three books. I know this. I did the research. So it's not that I like missed it in book four or something. So I don't, I don't know why. Does that ever happen to you guys? Do, do you ever reread books and think, wow, I could have sworn there was this thing in here and then it's not there? Um, I'm still reeling from that. That's been happening to me a lot lately. I, I don't know what's going on in my brain. But anyway, that is all I have to say about The Dark Elites. <laughs> Would highly recommend you go read, especially since I didn't spoil too much. And while they are imperfect, they are a good lesson in how to have fun while reading and still maintain good quality. So that being said, thank you for listening, and I will see you on the next page. <laughs>